This is a QAMR Berghofer Medical Research Institute podcast. When does worry become anxiety or feeling down progress to depression? Why do some of us travel through life with resilience and barely a worry in the world, and while others can experience debilitating anxiety and depression? Hi, I'm Claire Blake, and you're listening to Body Lab. With me today, Professor James Scott, Head of the Mental Health Research Program and the Child and Youth Mental Health Research Group at QIMR Berghofer, and he's a practicing psychiatrist. Thanks for joining us, James. Good to be with you, Claire. Now, Hippocrates treated depression with bloodletting, baths, diet, and exercise. How far have we come? Look, we've come a long way in terms of understanding mental health as, and mental illness as actual illnesses that affect people and cause significant morbidity and significant reduction in quality of life. There's been a concerted effort to try to reduce symptoms, get people functioning better. So I, I think really the big shift has happened over the last 60 or 70 years, and that's been in terms of psychological therapies, particularly cognitive behavioural therapy, which is widely available. It's, you know, you can get it on the internet, you can get it through podcasts like we're doing at the moment, you can go and see your own therapist, you can do online therapy. And then, of course, there's been the advent of medications. So we tend to talk about depression as being one illness, it's the same in everyone, but it's not. It's very variable from one person to another. In some people, the depression resolves very quickly and they recover and have a really good response. In fact, that's the majority of people, but... In some people, it's a severe, persistent, disabling illness that sometimes never goes away. Uh, CBT that you mentioned, cognitive behavioural therapy, is really successful, but it also requires a lot of hard work. Yeah. In terms of therapies, the more people put into it, the more they get out of it. Mm. And that's true for most. It's true if we go on a diet. The more you put into it, the more you get out of it. Same with physiotherapy. The more you put into it, the more you get out of it. Yeah. Same with psychological intervention. So when people sort of really get stuck into the therapeutic process, do the homework, attend appointments and such, they're much more likely to have a positive outcome. And that's not always easy because we've all got such busy lives. You know, so trying to put aside time to do therapy is not easy. Especially when you're struggling. Yeah, yeah, that's right. One of the core features of depression is it robs people of their motivation, you know, it causes this inertia in people. And so trying to get them to engage meaningfully in therapy can be quite challenging. And and that's one of the skills of therapists is to sort of get people motivated to work at their pace with their goals and get them really engaged in the therapeutic process. Certain people are predisposed. Absolutely. Some of the terrific science we're doing here at Kiamar Berghofer is looking at the genetics underlying these syndromes, underlying depression and anxiety and dementia and schizophrenia. Very clearly, there are genetic risk factors. People who have various genes that increase the risk of getting mental illnesses like depression. Mm. But there's also environmental factors. We know things like exposure to trauma in childhood, very strong risk factor. It's interesting because it's this combination where people are genetically disposed to getting these disorders and then life comes along. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, you know, they have adverse life events. We all are likely to have one or two adverse life events. But there are some people who unfortunately get experiences of chronic stress and trauma throughout their childhood. They're much more likely to get problems like depression, anxiety when they're adults. And on the flip side, 
Some people just seem to have natural resilience. Yeah, and that, that's probably an understudied area of psychiatry. You know, in, in psychiatry and psychology, we're often looking at illnesses and problems and impairments. The focus isn't as much on people who do well. But we do They're know... not coming into your practice. <laughs> I never see them. Yeah. <laughs> I never see them. I mean, we, we, we know that sort of growing up in a supportive family, having a supportive school, having good friends, not being isolated, mm. um, being naturally intelligent, all of these things make people more resilient to mental health problems. Most of us do, as you said, have worrying times. How do you know if you've crossed that bridge into depression or anxiety? I think it's often hard to know in general where the symptoms are persisting and where they're causing impairments in people's ability to function that's when help should be sought do people around you notice before you do that's actually clear that's a really interesting question so we talk about internalizing and externalizing disorders and so the internalizing disorders are those many around anxiety depression where people feel the experiences internally and other people may not notice and, and so it's the individual who notices those and when we ask parents about their kids' mental health if they're having internalising disorders if their children are having internalising disorders the parents often say oh no, my child's fine there's no problems there but when you ask the adolescent they say no, I feel terrible I worry every day I can't sleep it's really life's very difficult for me for the externalising disorders, so these are problems like aggression, like losing your temper, um, having conflict with others, being argumentative and such. And sometimes it's the result of stress that people behave this way. They don't know that they're doing it, but everyone around them sure knows it you know, because they become very difficult to be with. Is that more likely to happen in teenagers or any demographic? Uh, so girls... Females are more likely to internalise. Males are more likely to externalise. So that's a, that's a big one. You see in, for example, forensic populations and blokes in prison, many of them have mental health problems and many of the acts of aggression and such. Obviously, some are pure acts of antisocial behaviour, mm. but some are a result of males who are feeling depressed and anxious and reacting to those emotions in a way that's quite destructive to others. Anxiety is more common and depression these days or is it just more talked about and better diagnosed? It's both. <laughs> it's both. There are a number of study designs that examine, you know, they've taken a cohort of people from mm. a generation ago and they take another cohort now and they ask exactly the same questions. And what they show in some demographics, particularly amongst adolescent females... There's increased rates of depression and anxiety. I was just reading a study this morning, which I'm part of, where we asked mothers back in the 1980s about their symptoms of anxiety and depression, and now we've got their daughters 30 years later, and we've asked them exactly the same questions. Oh, that's fascinating and research. what we found, after you adjust for all sorts of things like education and socioeconomic status and such, because all these things have changed, obviously, over a generation. You know, back in the 80s, mothers were much more likely to be at home and much more likely to be married. They're much less likely to have had a university education. So we adjust for all of those things. What we find is that rates of anxiety about twice now in women around 30 years of age than what they were of their mothers at the same time back in the 80s. So there certainly are some generational changes that have occurred. Has that study gone to find out why? Well, it's really hard to know, isn't it? 
<laughs> you sort of what we try to do. So we, within the study, I reckon it's a brilliant study. What we've done is we've adjusted for a whole lot of things. Like, is it around work? Is it around yeah, you know, work opportunities? Mm. Is it around having kids? Expectations. Around, yeah, all yeah. these things. We adjust for those, and there's no difference. So we can't really just put it down to the changes in people's lives. So we, we don't know why it is. Mm. We don't know. And anxiety and depression go hand in hand. So they often go together, but not always. Some people will just have anxiety and not depression and vice versa. Some people are depressed but not anxious about things, but they're very highly correlated. Now, depression can come and go, but anxiety really needs to be treated. Is that right? I'd probably argue they both need treating. Um, Because (laughs) depression doesn't always come and go either. It can persist. Depression tends to be a more episodic disorder. Right. You know, so, and it can last for, you know, six, 12 months. So, in fact, I think the mean duration of depression is about nine months untreated. So, it's a long time to be unhappy for, you know, it's almost a whole year. Anxiety, you get state anxiety and trait anxiety. So, when we talk about state anxiety, we're really talking about anxiety that occurs at a particular point in time. Usually as a result of some sort of stress, it might be sort of a relationship breakdown or problems at work or something. Trait anxiety is people who are naturally anxious all the time, they've got high levels of sort of worrying about things. Of course, people who have trait anxiety, people who have naturally high levels of anxiety, are more likely then to get more anxious when there's problems at work or relationship right. breakdowns. Yeah. Anxiety, we, we talk about in those dimensions. There's sort of a physical symptoms the emotions that people experience and then the cognitive symptoms. And cognitive behavioural therapy really addresses all of those. That's, that's how it's so effective. Are there symptoms of anxiety that would surprise people struggling with memory? One of the really important things when we treat anyone with a mental health condition is to educate them about their condition so mm. they know what they're dealing with. You know, if you're 40 years of age mm. and you have your first panic attack and you get shortness of breath and chest pain and such, people immediately think, Oh, I'm having a heart attack, I'm yeah. going to die, it's, it's terrifying. When we educate people about the fact that this is an anxiety symptom, it's just anxiety, no one's ever died of anxiety, then people can manage that experience much better. If you think you're going to die from it, of course you get super anxious and it just becomes a feed-forward cycle. If you think, oh, this is just my anxiety, I've just got to take deep breaths or slow down, then these symptoms go away. Well, that's for an older person that's never been experienced to anxiety for themselves but let's talk about younger people for a while you've conducted extensive research into child and adolescent mental health including bullying prevention now what do we know about the effects of bullying i, I think we've got to identify it. we okay. have to identify it. we have to prevent it we have to manage it this was a area of research that i became very interested in from my clinical work what i love about being both a clinician being a psychiatrist and seeing patients most days as well as a researcher, is that what I see in my clinical practice, I think, oh, that's a really interesting research question. So some years ago I was doing my clinics and I was seeing all these young people and they came from good homes and they content and happy and such in terms of their family life. But they come and see me and they're depressed and suicidal and so forth and very high levels of distress. In the course of assessing these people, and this is back in 15, 20 years ago now, mm. in the course of assessing people, these kids kept saying, oh, you know, I'm getting picked on at school and bullied at school and this was before there was much attention to bullying and in fact there was a lot of thought given to physical bullying 
but not much else at that stage. The more I sort of talked to his kids, the more I thought, this is so much like kids are being abused. It's the same, but it's a sort of shame about it. The kids were saying there must be something wrong with me, I must be causing this bullying, it must be some deficit myself that's causing all these other kids to pick on me. And so as I sort of worked with these kids, um, you know, we tried various strategies, I went away and did some reading about bullying, because you know, I hadn't actually been taught very much about it when I went through my psychiatry fellowship, and, you know, it wasn't sort of talked about very much in the public space at that stage. Yeah. The few things really struck me. One was that some schools... The bullying was just endemic. Like there was just so much bullying going on, and in other schools there was almost none. The second was that when you took these kids out of an environment where they're getting bullied a lot and put them in a different school, more often than not, the bullying wouldn't continue. There was this kind of dogma at the time that you know there's no point moving schools because they'll just get bullied the next school they went to. This wasn't happening. And the third thing was that a lot of bullying was just happening to kids who were just nice pleasant kids it was really hard to understand well, I had my mind at that time that kids would get bullied there were probably things that made them more likely to get bullied um, they stood out for some yeah reason. yeah you know just so uh, targets in school and such but most kids I've seen they weren't standing out they're just sort of decent kids and this bullying had taken on a life of its own in this environment and it was really hard for the kids to stop it and the fourth thing was that at that time parents were very dismissive oh you're not getting hit so it can't be that bad you've just been called a few names <laughs> makes me so sad <laughs> so we got involved the old as, sticks and stones i think i grew up on that myself that, that kind of thing yeah yeah so we've done a lot of research in this area and we showed first of all the really damaging effects of bullying and we show that adolescents who experience bullying are sort of had rates of mental illness in adulthood comparable to those young people who've been sexually abused you know, so it was kind of that pathogenic, you know, it had an equivalent pathogenicity as sexual abuse. And of course, the, uh, the idea of children being sexually abused is abhorrent for community, and so it should be. Yeah. But there wasn't the same concern at that time about kids being bullied, even though the health effects were very similar in terms of mental health effects. And so we did a lot to sort of raise awareness of the sort of harm it's done to children and adolescents who are bullied about the same time. Other people doing research in the space were, were reporting the same thing. We show that those kids who are getting bullied were more likely to exit school early. They're more likely to be unemployed at 21 years of age. So they were on this trajectory of psychosocial disadvantage, economic disadvantage, mm. which of course just make life so much harder for them. So as a result of this research and other research that people are doing, there's been this real interest in trying to prevent bullying. And now most schools in Australia have, or I think every school in Australia have anti-bullying policy. It was really interesting. They tried to do this big trial recently on bullying prevention. And so these were strategies that worked really well 15 years ago. Now when they did it, they show that they don't work anymore. And the reason is that there's such good anti-bullying programs through the school now that to actually improve upon that's really hard. So the strategies that used to work because there was so much bullying going on they used to be very effective. Now the schools are so good at addressing bullying, and don't get me wrong, it still goes on, I know yeah. this, but it's so much better than what it was. The show an even better effect is very difficult. So where, where do we go from here? Well, we're, we're really pleased that there's much more awareness of the problems of bullying. There's much more of a public health approach to it, and schools are much safer environments. And are kids getting listened to a bit more? Very much so. Yeah, yeah very much so. Schools much more likely to respond. 
But we also know that there's still some vulnerable populations of kids, kids with disabilities, kids who, you know, who stand out in one way or another. They're still getting bullied and such. And so we're really sort of targeting our bullying interventions. Is it much harder to treat um, the developing brain in terms of medication than, say, an adult who's suffering anxiety and depression? I, I think the evidence for most of our medications in children and adolescents is much weaker. And partly that's because we don't do clinical trials on children and adolescents with these medications. They're all done on adults. Mm. And so it's, you know, we, we sort of sometimes as clinicians, we take the results from those clinical trials and put them upon adolescents in particular. You know, there are now some studies coming through showing that some medications are very effective for anxiety and depression in adolescents and more effective in psychological therapies. Mm. But my clinical experience shows that often when children and adolescents are unhappy, it's more external factors. You know, it's an unhappy home life, peer relationship problems, difficulties of schoolwork, kids for some reason feeling like they're not competent. Medication doesn't work for that. Giving tablets to kids who are unhappy because home's not safe doesn't really help them. That involves other interventions to sort of change the environment around a child to make things safer for them. So this is why we've been so interested in our work on sort of preventing child maltreatment, on making schools safer, on other initiatives which really sort of support the child to live in the environment Mm. which they're growing up in. We we find they're much more effective. Yes, keeping anyone off medication if you can. Yeah, yeah. Look, medication has a role and I don't want to sort of dismiss it completely because for some children it's absolutely critical and for some syndromes like ADHD, mm. medication is treatment of choice, absolutely. But for other things, I think we need to be sort of... We always need to be thinking about children in the context of a wider environment, in their family environment, school environment, mm. and, and making sure that we optimise the environments around the children so as to sort of make sure they're safe at school. On the medications, they've changed dramatically over the years and there's the SNRIs and the SSRIs and people who are doing really, really well on uh, Prozac, one of the older medications. Are they just getting better and better? Um, No. (laughs) I'd love to say they are, but they're not. So there's some big changes. So so let's think about two syndromes. Think about schizophrenia Mm -hmm. and let's think about depression. Prior to the 1960s, there was no medication for schizophrenia. In the 1960s, medication called chlorpromazine came along, accidentally found, shown to be effective in reducing the symptoms of schizophrenia. And since then, there's been incremental improvements in the medications, but not a lot, to be honest, and that's since the 1960s. In terms of antidepressants, the older antidepressants, what we call like the tricyclic antidepressants, mm. and so they're around the 1950s. In the early 80s, medications like uh, Prozac and SSRI was developed and came out. No real improvement since then. The leap forward of the SSRIs that are safe at the older antidepressants and overdose were lethal. You know, we were giving highly, highly toxic medications to people who were very suicidal. And, of course, that resulted in some overdoses and fatalities, and that was terrible. Yeah. Now the antidepressants we prescribe to people who are often depressed and suicidal are much safer in overdose. They're not completely safe, but they're much safer in overdose. But they're not more effective. They're just much safer. What proportion of people just don't respond to medication? That varies with the 
this stage of illness you're talking about. So, again, if you uh, let's talk about psychosis. If you give people with their first episode of psychosis medication, you'll get about an 80% response rate. You'll get complete remission in about 80% of people. If they stop the medication and they relapse, they've got about a 50% chance of recovering again. So when you get these sort of relapses and illness, chances of actually responding to medication reduces. And that's one of the real challenges because this illness comes on in people who are in their teens or their early 20s. We give them medication, we get them better. And we can say, look, ideally you should stay on this medication for life because if you relapse, we've only got 50% chance of getting you as well again. But of course, no 18-year-old wants to be on medication for life. And we can't predict if they're going to be people that will relapse or not relapse. So this is all the this all the clinical uncertainty that makes practicing psychiatry so difficult. Now we know you're working on this study that you absolutely adore right now, but what else is your team here at QIMR Burger for working on right now? Uh, so right now we're doing clinical trials and psychosis, so we're, we're looking to see whether or not there's sort of novel compounds. Uh, we're particularly interested in the food additive that seems to be very effective as an extra treatment for people who have treatment-resistant schizophrenia, for example. We're looking at whether or not some cases of psychosis can be caused by the immune system being dysregulated, so the immune system attacking the brain and causing psychosis. So we've got a big study going in that. Traditionally, we thought psychosis was all dopamine, but there's more and more evidence that for some conditions of psychosis, it might be an immune-mediated illness, which require a whole different set of treatments. We're doing a whole heap of studies, understanding better about child maltreatment. How do we sort of make family life safer for children so that parents can support their kids better. Now this information is general in nature for your own personal advice. Your doctor is definitely the best choice. Now the stigma, has that changed a little bit, James? Yeah, look, I, I think that there's, we, we talk about mental health literacy, so it's just being able to sort of understand what mental health conditions are and being able to talk about them. Mental health literacy in Australia has improved enormously. So the sort of conversations people have about depression, anxiety, never would have been had like 30 or 40 years ago. That means that people are more likely to access treatment, get well as a result of treatment, so that, that's been really helpful. People who have mental health conditions don't feel so isolated anymore. They know that other people have these conditions. These conditions are really common. It may be you or someone you know who needs help with anything we've talked about today. You can call Beyond Blue, 1300 22 4636, or Lifeline 13 11 14. Yeah. It's been great talking to you. And for more on Professor James Scott's body of work or any of our other research, go to qimrberghoffer.edu.au. Thank you so much for your time, James. I know you're very busy. Lovely. That's great. Thanks, Claire.